Your source for community, Muskoka-made talk shows are on Muskoka Magazine, The Bay 88.7. Hey, this is Dr. Shervin. Muskoka Magazine is brought to you by Dairy Lane Dental, keeping Muskoka smiling for over 30 years. Please visit DairyLaneDental.com. This is Boyer's Modern History of Muskoka with your host, Patrick Boyer. Hello, and welcome to another installment of Boyer's Modern History of Muskoka. I'm Patrick Boyer. Today's program is about an outstanding leader who left his mark on this province, on the area we think of as Greater Muskoka, and on Muskoka District itself. I am referring to Ojibwe Chief Meskwaki. Everybody in Muskoka, I'm sure, and, and all those connected with this far-famed district, want to know all they can about this man for whom our part of Ontario is named. Now, remembering that Indigenous peoples do not name places for themselves, the way vain individuals of other cultures embarrassingly do, you might well ask, how did this naming come about? Well, for uncounted centuries, this section of land was a prized indigenous hunting ground. Back in 1615, the first map of any non-indigenous person drew of this area was Samuel Champlain's. Across it, he wrote Chasse des Caribous, place for hunting caribou, which was something he had been able to learn from his Indian allies, the Wendats. Four centuries ago, caribou herds ranged here and First Nations hunted them. Now, a later map created by French fur traders showed beavers across this terrain, again, denoting it as a place for harvesting wildlife. Beavers now outranked caribou as being map-worthy to the French who had become caught up in the lucrative, if challenging, fur trade. By the 1840s, following regime change, it was British fur traders drawing maps. These pragmatic frontiersmen, who denoted places for the people or phenomenon they would encounter, to provide guidance and warning to anyone using their maps of this area, now wrote on them, Meskwaki's Hunting Grounds. The region remained a place for hunting wildlife. Indigenous people knew by oral tradition and respect that hunting rights here rested with Chief Meskwaki and his clan at Lake Kuchiching to the south. But white men who record things, not the indigenous people they traded with, put Meskwaki's name on their maps. By providing all the information that cartographers like to include to show how much they know about a place, 
it was non-Indigenous people who introduced this naming. And over decades, the same way the word Ojibwe morphed into Chippewa, Muskwaki became Muskoka. From the mid-1800s, with more non-Indigenous people calling these lands Muskoka, when the provincial legislature created the district as a distinct division, it understandably used the accepted name, Muskoka. This simplified spelling and pronunciation for Muskwaki, whose name is found in historical records with a variety of spellings, became widely accepted. The result of this mapping and naming history is that of Ontario's 22 counties and 11 districts, only one of the 33 honors a specific Indigenous person, Muskoka. Now, a second reason the name of Chief Muskwaki became legendary in the 1800s is that Two men were known by this same designation. Not that there was a clone. The second was the great chieftain's son. He was also such an important leader that the two chiefs imprinted their Meskwaki name on Ontario history as a two-in-one phenomenon. And his son, Isaac, carrying the family name, was expected to be a third chief Muskwaki, although the Chippewas of Rama chose another member of their community to be their next chieftain. One of the major impacts of the two chiefs Muskwaki, father and son, had on the province was the historic turning point when war broke out between the British and Americans in 1812. So here's the background leading up to that. In 1796, Chief Meskwaki canoed down to Fort York, now Toronto, on Lake Ontario's North Shore to become acquainted with the new government of the British people. Five years earlier, Britain divided Western Quebec into a separate colony, Upper Canada, for easier governing. Upper Canada in time would become today's Ontario. After that first sortie south, Meskwaki went back the following year, 1797, to assess things further. This time he continued around Lake Ontario to Niagara as well. Upper Canada's first governor, John Graves Simcoe, a military man who had fought American rebels on Long Island, during their War of Independence, had himself used irregular tactics closer to Indigenous warfare than regular British military maneuvers. He was highly impressed by Meskwaki. The power of the Ojibwe, wrote Simcoe, was not to be slighted. Although they are not numerous themselves in this part of the country, he added, they can draw to a head a most formidable number of warriors. When war erupted in 1812, 
Chief Meskwaki, true to his reputation, did indeed marshal a formidable number of warriors, including his son. This war party traveled south, reaching Lake Ontario and the Niagara Peninsula to help the British repulse the American invaders. As well, from Lake Nipissing, Chief Commander led a large party of Nipissings south into battle. Both Chiefs Meskwaki and Commander were resourceful leaders resolved to keep Canada from falling to the United States. These two Ojibwe chieftains knew the United States government and American settlers were aggressively removing Indigenous people from their own lands. Despite problems First Nations had with the British, they at least were doing more to accommodate Indigenous people than slaughtering and pushing them off their land, a policy being implemented by the Americans after they won independence from Britain and formed a separate country. London at least tried to maintain a working alliance with Indigenous people. When these First Nation allies from the North arrived and began to battle invading American soldiers, British commanders were awed by their artful warfare, scouting out enemy positions, combining deception and surprise, deploying fear by unleashing savagery, and cunning shifts from strategic plan to tactical operations. European commanders lined up their forces in opposing ranks, then attacked one another across open fields, like two football teams facing each other, except with lethal weapons instead of a ball, the winner being the last one standing. First Nations considered such annihilating slaughters and the concept of warfare producing them utter folly and a grievous waste of life. In 1813, the second year of the war, a naval battle gave Americans control of Lake Ontario, allowing invading U.S. forces to easily cross open waters. Fort York and the settlement that sprouted around it had become Upper Canada's new capital back in 1797 as a defensive move. The colony's first capital of Newark, renamed Niagara, was just a musket shot from the U.S. border. That was a danger Chief Musquaki had himself observed when scouting the area some years earlier to evaluate firsthand the military threat from Americans. Although York, being farther from the border on the north shore of Lake Ontario, was considered more defendable, it now lay open to attack from the U.S. When the first wave of 300 invading American soldiers landed and attacked York on April 27, 1813, the only opposition they encountered were some 50 Ojibwe and Mississauga warriors. The British had withdrawn, leaving the settlement's defense to Canadian militiamen who had not shown up and the Indians. Chief Meskwaki, then in his mid-40s, was severely wounded when a musket ball shattered his jaw. 
His son, Meskwaki, also sustained wounds, yet continued leading the warriors until the American soldiers, after looting and burning much of York, were driven off. That battle at York was one of many military encounters on both sides of the border for Meskwaki, father and son, and their warriors. Their warfare in the Niagara Peninsula made the difference, as did Shawnee Chief Tecumseh's inspiring and courageous leadership further south of an indigenous coalition known as Tecumseh's Confederacy, which British forces joined in battle. It can rightly be said that if not for the resolute First Nation warriors, the British colony would have fallen to the Americans, and Ontario today would be one more state in the Union and just another star on the United States flag. After a station break, the drama will continue. By Muskoka for Muskoka, your collection of Muskoka-based talk shows. Muskoka Magazine, The Bay, 88.7. I'm Dr. Shervin from Dairy Lane Dental, and you're listening to Muskoka Magazine. This is Boyer's Modern History of Muskoka, with your host, Patrick Boyer. Welcome back. I'm Patrick Boyer, and we're examining the historic importance of Chief Meskwaki for whom Muskoka District is named. Let's review some more military history, then turn to land treaties. In 1817, the second Meskwaki, at the desire of his father, became head chief of the Ojibwe people around Lake Simcoe and Huron. Two decades after that, in 1837, Upper Canada's privileged and out-of-touch colonial regime faced armed rebellion by members of its own ill-treated society. The fighting by farmers and others was militarily suppressed, but unrest continued into 1838 with American border raids by rebels who had fled. Based on how fearless and effective the Ojibwe had been in the War of 1812, the government summoned them to arms, as if Britain's indigenous allies were a standing militia of the crown serving as a local defense force, rather than a sovereign people. Well, at least the British pledged them soldiers' pay. The younger Chief Meskwaki dutifully assembled warriors and led them south to the Holland Landing Military Depot at the south end of Lake Simcoe, where they encamped, ready for battle. After waiting in readiness for some months, they were dismissed. The government decided conditions had stabilized without having to fight. The Ojibwe were not paid their stipend. For military service. Their food rations were suspended. Their families were languishing without them. The list of chiefs and warriors at Holland Landing included Meskwaki, Bigwin, and many others who, except for being sidelined to support the British colonial administration, would otherwise have been north of the Severn River in Meskwaki's hunting grounds. To fight for the British, they had been required to abandon their fall hunt in Muskoka for winter food. 
Turning now to treaties, there were two involving Meskwaki. Back in 1815, acting as head chief in his father's place, the second Meskwaki and two other chiefs signed a treaty surrendering, that is, surrendering in quotes, the word the British used, some 250,000 acres between Lake Simcoe's Kempenfelt Bay and Georgian Bay. To be clear, that is a quarter of a million acres. The amount of money to be paid by the Crown to the First Nations whose lands these were was 4,000 pounds. By 1818, when Meskwaki's son had formally seceded his father as head chief, representatives of the Crown negotiated with him and other Ojibwe chiefs for further surrender, again, that's surrender in quotation marks, of more than a million and a half acres. Got that? One and a half million acres. Land now parts of Gray, Wellington, Dufferin, and Simcoe counties. All for a yearly payment of 1,200 pounds in perpetuity. These two treaties together accounted for most of the Ojibwe's territory in the region. The British felt they had acquired it, using the term surrendering land to describe losing it, viewing the treaty as a purchase agreement for outright sale. Yet Meskwaki and the other chiefs, understanding matters within their land use concept of a bowl with one spoon, had reserved their right and that of their people and successor generations to range and hunt this very same territory, viewing the treaty not as a disposal of their land, but an invitation to share it with others. British settlers latched onto personal ownership of land in fee simple, and even spoke of land ownership as an individual right. First Nations saw land more like a public park, comparable to the English landholding concept of the commons, a place to be shared by all under mutually accepted conditions. That is why, to the chagrin of the British and annoyance of settlers, Meskwaki and his people continued using their lands around Lake Simcoe and in Muskoka the way they had since time immemorial. They were violating a treaty concerning their traditional lands, but living in accordance with the one-bowl land-sharing concept. Clearly, they had entered a twilight zone because the British deemed treaties effectively terminated Indigenous presence on land. The immense territory in question was land on which Meskwaki and countless Ojibwe generations had lived and hunted and fished to feed their families. Who could believe that they had negotiated away their survival rights? Did the British expect these people would simply evaporate into thin air? The fact that First Nations did not vanish but remained on their land inspired the British to attempt their first experiment with an Indian reserve, a patch of land like a concentration camp for migratory people. 
Now, that gambit did not work out, something we'll look at in a future program in this series. Chief Meskwaki's historical importance far exceeds fighting for the British in times of invasion and insurrection, important and vital as that was. It goes beyond signing treaties and then pushing the British colonial powers to live up to their commitments. It even entails more than repeatedly pressing the British to make their required payments. Ultimately, Chief Meskwaki's leadership ensured that his people secured a long-term foothold along Lake Kuchiching shores, where they could survive and now live proud and strong today. And to their north is a land monument to their great chief, Muskwaki, Muskoka. These topics are more fully addressed in my new book, Muskoka Heritage Nuggets, which is being officially launched this coming Thursday evening, May 11th, at Cedar Canoe Books in downtown Huntsville from 7 to 9 p.m. If you're able to come on Thursday, I'll also, if you can't come on Thursday, I'll also be at the Cedar Canoe Saturday morning, May the 13th. I sure hope you can make it, and I look forward to chatting with you more about this subject then and there. Thank you for listening to this radio installment of my Modern History of Muskoka here on Hunters Bay Radio in Huntsville. Our producer is Matt Fisher. I'm Patrick Boyer.